Fine Dining, the search for the most mediocre restaurant in America, is a podcast where comedian Michael Ornelas is traveling the country, eating at all chain restaurants in search of the perfectly average 5.0 out of 10 dining experience. The objective middle threshold of where bad becomes good. Friend of the Doughboys, Marissa Pinson and John Glover were the most recent guests as they reviewed Costco's Food Court. It's a two-part episode that covers everything from discontinued menu items to how many Costco hot dogs they could fit in their mouths. Damn, I wish I was on that episode. I'd crush that. Head over to linktree.com slash fine dining podcast, uh, F-I-N-E-D-I-N-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and click B's giveaway to enter a giveaway for an all-expenses-paid trip to your local Applebee's, the current frontrunner for the most mediocre restaurant in America at 5.02 out of 10, for you and up to three of your friends. And you can watch or listen to Fine Dining on your platform of choice while you're there. Enter by May 1st, and the winner will be announced on the May 8th episode. Disclaimer, $50 will be provided for transportation along with a $200 Applebee gift card. I love doing those fast read disclaimer things. Go give fine dining a listen. The search for the most mediocre restaurant in America. This is a HeadGum Podcast. What's up, shitheads? Welcome back to another episode of High and Mighty. It's me, a boy. The number one fuckboy from the south shore of Nassau County, Long Island, standing six foot two, over 300 pounds, it's Johnny G. All you gotta do is trust me. Jackson, Maine from A Star Is Born? Abortion is healthcare. Okay, well that is a more topical reference than you yourself. Also joining me in the High Mighty Studios, my nearly silent co-host, Arthur Gabris. Arthur, give him a shout out. Arthur is a senior dog currently watching my wife make flowers in the other room. He no longer hangs out in the studio. He can't even hear me when I shout his name. Also joining me in the High Mighty Studios, first time guest from the Emerald Cup, we got Tim Blake. Boy. Glad to be here with you. Hard to follow that intro. You are definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> confident and uh, colorful. That's for sure. Love no to be need, here. Thanks. No, thanks for coming, man. No need to follow. Uh, I said like from the Emerald Cup, which makes it seem like you could just be like from a fantastical land. Um, you run the Emerald Cup, the cannabis competition that is kind of uh, famous amongst us, uh, uh, us Ents, us potheads. We all know the Emerald Cup. Uh, what's that? We'll get into aliens a little bit. I'm just curious. What's it like running like we- weed competition? Like that's so interesting. Well, there's two different parts to it. Running the weed competition or the cannabis competition is one whole endeavor in itself. And this year we had uh, 670 entries. So when you have almost 50 competitions, over a hundred judges and all those entries, and you have to get it up to people all over the state of California and then do meetings with all those judges it's a really major organizational task just to do that one. I could only imagine. Yeah. A friend of mine is doing, oh, yeah. uh, I did a super sesh on 420 uh, as an episode of the pod. And Ashley is doing the, a cart. She's a cart judge. And my friend Bean and oh, yeah, is, yeah. is a edible judge. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Re- really wild to coordinate all that. Be- also, even just being a judge of it seems like a difficult process, you know, like on the third dab, you're like, okay, hold on. I need another day before I get back to uh, check the flavor profile of this or something. I feel like I would get 
a little too toasted or like I have to bring that Somme energy, the sommelier energy, you know, and like not inhale like Clinton or something. Well, you know, we had we do an application process for every judge that comes in. We had almost 400 applications this year to judge and our judges, most of them never want to leave. So we have to keep expanding our teams. Our flowers team went from eight to 12 to 14. I think it was 21 people this year because nobody would get off the damn team. But we had to keep <laughs> adding people who want to join. So it becomes crazy. But uh, we realized 21 is too many. We're not going to go above 18 because that's just too many people around a table uh, debating. You should have seen the table and the lively conversations going around the flowers. But on top of that, it's a uh, it's a very extremely challenging task, especially for a competition uh, like the edibles. The edibles people, we should just give them an assistant. Each one of them should get an assistant to make sure they get to bed at night yeah. and they get fed properly. <laughs> and dictate okay. the emails <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. We're talking to those guys and they're doing you know some some of them doing you know a lot up to thousand milligrams a day. You know, I would be down in the ground at 50 milligrams and these guys are pumping down 10 times that. But uh, those guys do a job. The flowers, we had over 320 entries. So Damn. you have over 300 entries. You have a 30 day contest. Sounds like a lot to judge, right? That means the judges have to try over 10 entries a day for 30 days every day. They don't get a day <laughs> off. If they miss a day, they got to do 20. And so even though these are beasts and these guys, I mean, we have one judge, uh, you know, Nicole Powell, she buys for West Coast Cure. She said she's bought 16,000 legal pounds this year already. You know, those are the kind of judges we got. And even them, even they are like, they're just floored at how much do you have to go through. Yeah, I, I can imagine. It's like a black mirror level thing. You're like, I love smoking cannabis. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> 10 different strains a day for 30 days. You're like, okay, that's a that's a little different. You know, that's that takes well, like, no money that. But then, but you also have to write down your thoughts right. on every one of these. <laughs> you so have you're to intellectualize it all. <laughs> you're not going getting stoned and wandering off watching TV or the, or the or the moon. You have to stand there and really think and write stuff down. At 10 times every day, 300 times. And then you got to get together with these other boss judges and you got to go toe to toe with your top 20s and their top 20s and go round and round because we don't just <laughs> let the scores dictate. We have the judges get around the table, put all the top 20 on there and go one by one because we want to make sure the best bud wins. And you know what? A lot of changes occur from that original top 20. It really, it changes. And so uh, the judges probably, I was with them, they probably smoked three, 400 joints over a two-day period, our final judges retreat. We went to the O'Kale Ranch. We do a sponsorship with these beautiful people, the Powell family, go out to this stunning ranch that they use for weddings, like two big houses and pools and, you know, and then you sit inside with those people and smoke for two straight days coming up with the best of the indoor, sun-grown, uh, mixed light and everything. And, you know, it literally takes full two days. So they... Uh, it burns me out. I'm 68. It's hard to keep up anymore. I oh, tried wow. this year. <laughs> I, this year I tried again. And after I'd gone through like 160 or 70 or whatever it was, I just was like, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if I got it anymore. I don't know if I got what it takes. Yeah, it, it is fun to semi-retire to just recreational ingesting, <laughs> like rather than just because uh, if I you like asked me it. after a month, I'd be like, uh, the sorbet one was good and people would be like oh you motherfucker i'm like sorry i should have get better track my notes would be all like scribbles and like look like a ransom note or some shit <laughs> you know what we give everybody really good paperwork to write on everything's they got pens pads everything's lined up we make it all numerical it's all identical it's really easy for them to do on that note it is a huge job it's a fun that job so being with the judges and getting together with all those OG people and talking and hanging for two days. 
I feel like, you know, you see those big Fortune 500 companies who go on retreats with the VIP, you know, the VPs and stuff. I've always wondered what they're doing there, you know. But for us to get together for two days and do that is like, people love it. I'll tell you what, everybody comes up to hang out and it's just like, that's right. I would be de- like, that'd be so sick just to be around people who are that knowledgeable and hear them talk. I hear them talking about various strains. That's always like a fun thing when you meet some OG legend uh, who's been around for a while or is super knowledgeable. And you're like, oh, I think I know a thing or two. And then you hear them start talking. And you're like, oh, shit. OK, yeah, I do not <laughs> like um, no more than you. Uh, good. But you're hiring the right people as judges. That's awesome. Uh, we'll get more into Emerald Cup shit uh, later as uh, when we plug. But when I when I asked your uh, publicist, I'm like, well, tell Tim, ask Tim what he wants to talk about. We always talk about whatever on the pod. And there was a list of a few different things, cannabis related not. But one of them was aliens. And then even your publicist is like, I think I recommend aliens. <laughs> I was like, OK, uh, I've done episodes about aliens before. I am a casual uh, paranormal guy, casual extraterrestrial guy, I believe. I am very curious. And. I want to talk about this because as a avid uh, cannabis user and psychedelic user, I feel like that overlap with believing in aliens, the, the Venn diagram is, is got a lot of space in the middle, I guess, is what I'm getting at. I feel like a lot of my fellow alien heads or ghost people are frequently also uh, cannabis users or psychedelic users. And it's like a chicken or egg situation, it feels like. Uh, for the listeners, Tim scrambling away. I do like the. Oh, no, I do okay. like that. I see a Yankees hat. Is that a Yankees hat I see back there? Oh, you know what? I got a Yankees hat. That's a signed Mickey Mantle hat. One of the few exist in the world. Damn! I bought that right before Mickey died, and uh, my friend said, "There's six of these. You should really buy one uh, because Mickey's not going to be here that long. He died like two months later." Jesus, and that's I had that awesome. hat ever since. And uh, you know, I really I want to find the right New Yorker or the right you know, Yankee fan that, that, that deserves that or does that, or maybe I'll, maybe I'll give it away as one of the Emerald cup things to a true Yankee fan or something someday. But I just, I mean, I love baseball. I love every sport. Uh, I'm a giants guy. I'm a West coast guy, but I love the Yankees and the right Yankee fan is going to end up with that. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, you don't have to be a Yankee fan uh, or even a baseball fan to be like, like Mickey Mantle. Like he's like one of those. That's true. But I mean, but somebody who like, Somebody who reveres Mickey and they're going to see that and they're going to be like, it's going to be theirs. It's It's like, I've been holding that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been holding that for 30 years for the right person to come along. Um, But um, so, yeah, the the alien thing, I've been dealing with aliens since I was a kid or ET family. My. uh, Dealing with is an interesting verb there. (laughs) Like, you know, know. (laughs) you're like, I've been invading my yard for years and I've been scaring them away with rakes or something like that. (laughs) Sounds like raccoons or something. Yeah. We used to call it the orchard man would come to our windows uh, as kids, like six brothers and sisters. And we used to thought it was the orchard man or somebody from the orchard, which we called it. I realize now uh, a lot of that was our ET family. Um, we lived uh, two blocks from downtown on the beach in Capitola near Santa Cruz. And we had, a because it was right downtown, we had like three locks on the doors, five locks, double locks, everything, three-story place. And uh, I woke up on the beach one day about eight years old in my underwear. I had never slept walking my life about three blocks away in my underwear. And I was like, Saturday night, I was just kind of embarrassed. I ran home because it was a big night on the Esplanade, all the boardwalk and everything going on. Ran home, got to my house, knocked on the door. My dad came down, opened the door. He's like, looked at me like, what are you doing out there? How'd you get out there? Because it's all locked and stuff. How'd you get out there? And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And he was like, he was like, as I was a kid, he didn't know. I didn't know. I just went, went to bed, right? Didn't think about it. When I did some regression work with some uh, 
specialist ET regressionist years later about another regression. I went into that one and regressed and realized that I was picked up by a ship and then dropped off at the beach there because they wanted me to remember that. And that was one of my earliest experiences where they they went off on a little abduction ride and then again, they dropped me off on the beach. So I, I would have that experience. And so those came in. And so that's when I said dealing Whoa. with ETs. Most of so, us have been dealing with ETs through lifetimes. Yeah. So curious, curious why you think uh, you specifically got, because it sounds like you had multiple experiences because I, if I heard you correctly, you went to a regression session for something else and then that and discovered uh, this memory, this uh, or like more details from this memory, meaning you were pursuing something out like. Yeah, I had and, another, and it I does had happen to people. There are people who seem to be sort of magnetic to these uh, experiences and these interactions and these. Uh, and what what do you think is the the cause or uh, some possible explanations for why you? It's your past lifetimes and your soul development and where you are uh, in your spiritual manifestation. I mean, we're all basically reincarnating until we reach enlightenment and connect with God. And then we can go on to other realms or other other places. This we have to graduate. So uh, in my case, I've been interacting with, with our ET family for many, many lifetimes. I've known that since I was a child. I've been drawn to them. I've always looked at the stars. People people are or they're not. And some people are not awakened until later and whatnot. But I was awakened very early. And uh, there was a book uh, called... Um, uh, what's that book? Hold on here. I'm not... Yeah. Hell yeah. Analog research for the listeners. Oh, Tim's not Googling. He's hitting the bookshelf behind him. This book right here was called UFO Contact with the Pallades, and it was brought out in 1975. And it was the first UFO book that oh, you can't really see all the pictures, but it was the I first can, book yeah. with pictures of the Palladians. And I got enamored with that book. It was uh, Billy Meyer from Switzerland and all these Naval Air Force people. There wasn't much information in the 70s. You had to find it. If you want to look at conspiracy theories or people that really research, the ET people are the best in the world because they have to work so hard to find stuff. Back then, it was Zachariah Sitchin with the 12th planet and uh, Nehru and the Anunnaki. It was some of the Sumerian people, Graham Hancock. I could name the people that were leading the, the UFO subject. Most of them either from historical context where they were showing ancient like materials. That's, Hancock, that's Hancock's wheelhouse. That guy yeah, I'm or, familiar or the with. futuristic yeah. people like, like Zachariah Sitchin. Uh, and so I started following all that stuff and became very fanatically involved. I spent $100,000 in the 80s developing a UFO television show. And then <laughs> I was working with John Lear from uh, Lear Jets. His father was Bill Lear. And he was a 22-year CIA combat pilot who retired and went into MUFON because of all the UFO stuff. And he was the head of Nevada MUFON, which is the UFO organization. I was working with John to put this program together in the 80s. And then he researched me and said, you know what? You're not like connected. Nobody gave you permission. You're just doing this shit. And he goes, <laughs> they got the timeline. He said, I would suggest you got a wife and kids. Go back into your hole. Don't do this. They'll bring all this out and it'll all come out in its due time. He said, at that time, 10% of people were really into UFOs. Now, 15 years later, at the year 2000, that got up to almost 70%. They put about 40 movies out. They basically conditioned us and got us ready. So I did what John Lear said, and I, I didn't put that... Within six months, Sightings came out, that famous UFO show called Sightings. Yeah, yeah. And that was the show that brought it out. So what happens is I've been studying this whole way through, and I started working with UFO hypno hypnotherapists because they hypnotize you and they go take you back into these experiences. And I started researching all of it. I had an experience in Shasta where 
uh, UFO ship came in front of three of us and basically did some unbelievable tricks in front of all of us. And uh, it was like such an incredible maneuvering experience. tricks or lighting tricks or uh... we were, well, fast, fast. We're going down Highway five near Shasta. We're coming back from Oregon. I got a guy in my car. That's my friend. I got a guy I don't know who's driving. And all of a sudden to the right, about 10 miles off, we're watching this getting dusk, this craft or this light thing following us and keeping speed with us and going in and out and doing these weird things. And we're we're talking about it. This Christian guy next to me, not that he's Christian, but he's a straight guy. He was like thinking we're crazy. Finally, he says, pull over. And then he makes us drive and he watches it and it does the same thing. And he's like, what is that? Is that a spacecraft? I mean, is that a uh, military thing or what? The th- what is this thing? So we finally pull over again. We're standing there, it's almost dusk, and we watch this thing, and all of a sudden it separates into three pieces and starts twirling. You know, and we're Whoa. all he said, You see that? And we're all like, Yeah, we see that. Three things twirling. And we're like, oh my God. And then it comes back together into one piece and then starts coming towards us. And we're all like, we're all describing exactly what's happening. And I'm thinking, I'm going. I've been with the ET. I'm thinking, this is it, we're going. And this thing, as it comes over us, comes near us, a big fog bank came in. So you can only see the bottom of it, and it's just pulsating with this it took over all four lanes of highway five it was gigantic over the top of us this truck going the other way was beeping just beep 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 as he's going i'm the guy's freaking all of a sudden it took off from zero to light speed and disappeared into the universe in like one second we were just left standing there whoa that's fucking awesome what what was and we're all just looking at each other like i'm like i got it but these guys are like what the, so make a long story short, years later, I went and did this regression thing. And I had a place where I went down to to regress on that. And when I went into the regression, before I could get down, this lady in a silver spacesuit come into my regression and sat down. And I was like, I started explaining this to the regressionist. And she said, just go ahead. Well, it turned out that was the woman that came and got me in the spaceship to go on these abduction things. Right. So now I think I've got to go find my two people and find out what they went through. Right. I couldn't find one guy. I found this other guy that I barely knew, the Christian guy. I'm Christian too, doesn't matter. But I, I finally get a hold of this guy and he's like not having it. He's like, I don't want to talk about this. It's my life's ruined. It's over. You know, why are you calling me? And I'm like, dude, I just had an incredible experience. I went through a regression thing. I want to figure out what you were going through. And, and I'm okay. Whatever you're going through, I'm with you. Okay. So I had to loosen the guy up and he's like, finally, he's like, you know what? My wife's left me. They, they want to do demonic things at my church. They think I'm possessed. Uh, I'm I'm not allowed anymore. I'm losing my job. I'm like, damn, what the hell's going on, dude? And he goes, well, now this was before Bud Hopkins came out. The whole thing with them abductees getting the the sperm from people to do uh, hybrid babies that came out right. in the eighties. That was Bud Hopkins. Nobody knew about this yet, so I didn't know either. So this guy goes, well, I get picked up in these ships by these people, and they come and they take they take my sperm. And so I'm thinking, okay, they take your sperm. Okay, now I'm starting to think, okay, maybe the guy is a little bit off. About six months later, all this stuff came out from Bud Hopkins about them coming and doing this abductions and taking sperm and making hybrid babies and stuff. It's a huge thing. I didn't know. So I'm like, okay, well, that's a trip. But what's going on? And so he tells me, yeah, this this blonde lady in a silver spacesuit comes and picks me up. And I'm like, oh, my God, you just what? What did you just say? And he, he describes her perfect. And I'm oh, like, man. you're kidding me. I flew him down. I had him go through regression. We had the same thing. We're basically tied in. All this stuff, make a long story short. I, I'm part of that hybrid breeding project too and stuff that's all going on. And so is he. And that was a wake-up call for us to be aware of that one too. That's just one of like 10. I've had him come over with 20 people in a field planting 10,000 plants in the middle of a field at night. And I've had every one of the people watch UFOs come to us and dance in the sky 
go from side to side, blink on and off. Everybody, I had these Okies with me one time and they're like out there, we all get it. And Davey's like, you know, Tim, I don't have any doubt that's an ET and I don't have any doubt we're seeing all this, but if we don't get these plants in the ground by dawn, we're all going to prison. So we gotta get back. <laughs> priorities like, are priorities. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I wave to my friends and I go, we gotta go, sorry. In the morning, we're just done. It's almost light. We're getting done, we're walking out. And all of a sudden that thing comes back, the big round, like sunlight light. And it comes down out of the sky and comes down behind this field, behind this giant set of trees. And I'm watching, my friends are watching. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm walking to it thinking we're going again. And then all of a sudden it just cruised along this riverbank, just and then just took off and went into outer space at light speed and disappeared in front of like 20 people. Oh, that's rad. Now, when you do the regression therapy, do you have memories off earth do you have memories of being on ships or transported anyway or is that something that's still ungraspable because of what they're doing or technology or how our brains are protecting us or whatever i know there's so so many justifications in every direction as to what exactly is going on but i'm curious i'm curious where how your memories go oh and let's tell the listeners uh what we're sparking if i would i just smoked a gorilla glue number four from Sky Club uh, in Van Nuys, their one of their home strains was delightful. A little, a little uh, stuffed a cone. It was a nice little treat. What about yourself, Tim? What are you on over there? Right here. This is a gelato cross, but I don't know which one. It's one of the cup entries, and oh, so cool. I don't know exactly which one it is, but it's delicious. Oh, and uh, I got my back, and I'm still feasting on those and going through them. And uh, <laughs> that's it's, awesome. Uh, it's a fun thing to do. Gelato, um, the gelato family strain is one of the ones uh, is like one of my favorites. And I don't know if it's uh, like because I actually like the flavor and the uh, the effects or it's because the name works on me in a way. You know what I mean? Like because I'm always like, I love gelato strains. They taste so good. And then I'm like, is it because gelato is like is making my brain think that I can't really determine, but I'm a big fan of the gelato. It's- if it has it's, sherbet no, it or sorbet good. or gelato in the name, yeah. I love it. When you when you went into when you got into the Skittles, you got cookies and then you hit the Skittles and you got the desserts and you got the gelatos and all. They're all a really wonderful flavor, a terpene yeah. profile. People got it. Now they're mixing more gas in there and they're they're really revving it up. And it's just uh, you know, it's incredible. Years ago, I didn't think we were ever gonna get beyond OG, headband, uh, sour D, chem dog. I mean, as far as the gases. Right, yeah. Just yeah. Those, those gases. I thought that's what we're going to live on forever. And now there's just so much genetic uh, breeding going on. It's so many incredible cultivars coming out that it's just blows. Them. I can't even keep up with it. It's this times that times that cross back. And these, these cats, these genetic people will tell you, Oh, came in from here, there back through this back cross into that. And I'm like, man, I don't even know how, you guys spend all day and night researching the show. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. I feel outclassed because now I don't even know the sometimes the parent strains, but I always used to be able to be like, Oh, it's cherry yeah. AK and what? Like I always understood the crosses. Now the two parent strains, I don't even know what they, and I'm like, okay, I trust you. It, it has some root word in it that I like, or you mention, uh, uh, you say it's, it's very piney. I'm in, you know, like there's certain things that just trigger me where I'm, I'm game. I, that I have like, I, I, you know, I, um, I drink wine, like a lot of adults and I am at more informed on cannabis, but the way I have been is the same way I got wine. I'm like, someone's like, 
I tasted a Montepulciano or a Malbec and liked it. And I was like, what do you, what kind of Malbecs do you have for four years? You know, like I just didn't know what, what I liked. I just, I didn't know what was good. I just knew what I liked. And that was me with cannabis for like the first five years of my life. I'm like, I love headband and I love Jack Herrer. And I was just creaming those all the time. And then now I've just like, my, my palate is like wide open. And I, I don't think I've bought headband or jack Herrer like pure like in a long time or received i should say i don't buy a lot but yeah but you know what it's wonderful <laughs> to see we've got uh these jack this you know the crosses uh with the terpinoline and it wasn't a big seller over the years but now they're crossing it with some gas and whatnot and they're coming out with all these unique uh cultivars that have that jack hazy taste and smell but they're really a little stronger and and they're great. I mean, we've really uh, we've mixed so many things up. It's it's been a blast to really be part of the contest and see that, um, and to watch this over the years and to see how many people really uh, are dedicated to it. I mean, our industry is in good hands. Our community is in good hands. I mean, I'm getting older. I'm 68, but I look back and think there's so many people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, even 50s, that are going to lead the way over the next 20 years, and it's incredible. Your age, your age, and the time we live in really puts you at like working in cannabis for the period that you did that has the entire idea of cannabis has changed in the 40, 50 years that you like a plus. Oh, no, I've, been I've been, I've been involved in cannabis since I was uh, 14, you know, so it's been uh, 54 years. Like, so the, the, the map of that, like from like the map of what that's like, even, you know, even in California, which now feels like, you know, a forerunner of like, legalization and that lifestyle and like lifestyle and uh wellness shit it 50 years is a long time in this plant's life because like our attitudes towards it have changed socially governmentally legally and are in and still in flux and still not at the final opinion of it that we've uh, we've reached but it's like that must have been wild for you to be along for this entire ride to the point now where you're talking on a podcast openly saying Talk, we're openly safe to say we're having a competition. The competition is listed. It's all legal. You know what I mean? Like all this stuff to get to this point where now there is like a world cup, an emerald cup of it here. And like, that's such a journey and that it's like that we all know about it and it's not going to get rated, you know, like that's such a wild experience. You know what? I, uh, we were in San Jose, which was the, the you know, Bay area. And, uh, we had a place on the beach and we moved over there permanently when I was 14 so all of a sudden we're two blocks off the beach. We're downtown in an art village where everybody are all hippies. And now they're coming to my parents who have an art gallery and they're all smoking pot. And I'm living in the old keg room, the bar down below with the pool table with, with uh, black lights and getting all the pot from my parents' friends and taking it to school and selling it in high school now, 14, <laughs> 15 years old. And I grew right into that business. And all those kids became the basis for the business that blew up. And all of a sudden, from 1969 to 75, all of a sudden it became people bringing in 100,000-pound loads of Thai sticks and Mexican and Colombian and hash. And all of a sudden, I was working for those. Now I'm 20 years old as I got out of high school in 78, 79, and I'm working for those people. And by the time I'm 24, I'm getting 5,000 pounds at a time of Thai sticks and Mexican and hash. Jeez. I mean, I'm part of a global network that's all coming in. They're dropping stuff off of the West Coast. They're bringing ships in and dropping like 100,000 pounds in Seattle, Portland, Eureka, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, L.A., and then out to sea. And all that would move back to the East Coast. It would all come through us, hit the Bay Area, and then go, go back East. And uh, <sighs> it was a huge machine that was running 
And I was like the youngest one. I was like the, the nickname, the kid. I was running all that with the, the, the older people that were now like probably 30 to 40. And that blew up into the early 80s uh, with a huge network until they finally got the DEA going and all the rest of it. And they finally came in. And that's when Biden put the um, minimum mandatory prison sentences together in the mid 80s, where all of a sudden my guy got 6,000 pound bust and he did six months in jail. And a year later, that was 15 years. Ugh. And at the same time, they built the private prison systems. And I had a guy come to me. It was back then you had families of people. You either worked for the for the Italians who did the boats because they ran all the boats off the coast of, you know, and or you worked for the hippie kids that were a lot of the Southern guys, or you worked for the, the Jewish family. I worked for a lot of those guys, even though I'm Irish, I worked for all of them. And uh, we all worked together, but there was no, it was all cool. There's no guns or violence. These were common groups. They weren't gangs or they were collaborators. And uh, they, one of the guys came to me from the big coast people, big sur people. And he came and showed me the best pot in the world. And he said, we're going to be growing it under those lights in 18 months. We're going to be growing this indoors under these lights because they're going to take out every load that's going to come in and they're going to bust it all and everybody's going to go to prison and we're going to have to grow pot indoors. And I looked at him like, we're going to be growing pot under lights like Safeway because we're not going to have any pot because they're going to bust all the load. I had like 5,000 pounds in my backyard. I'm like, you're out of your mind. But it was the best pot I'd ever seen. It became known as the Grease, the Magic, and the Chronic. And that was the beginning of indoor. And I had to buy uh, all of it for like anybody else was paying. And 18 months later, I had to go back and get that clone. You had to give the guy give them one uh, third of your crop for six crops to get the cut. And you couldn't take one cut of it or they'd beat you up. It was before OG, even it was the first super pot. And I had to go back and get that because they busted 12 loads in a row and they put the minimum mandatories in and built the private prisons. Oh yeah. That's Cause that's, that's camp. when they, they went fucking haywire on. Well, it's also like a way to break up counterculture movement mo uh, movements. Like, you know, hippies are using it. We could blame other uh, minorities for uh, make, make pot seem like the devil's lettuce and reefer madness and all that shit. Um, and then they could just, you know, stomp on the necks of people who are just trying to make a buck and uh, move a plant around the country. Uh, that's, that's so why, like to go from that to sitting around at a hotel conference room, uh, discussing the flavor profiles of over 30 different strains. Like that's a, that's a crazy run in a, in a career to start. Well, well what, what, what happened though, that was the mid eighties. And so I got into a big bust and almost went to prison for 20 years myself and then moved up to Mendocino and came up here into Mendocino. Uh, that was in the um, early nineties. And then I did a big, a bunch of indoor grows because most people forget that most of us were growing big indoor crops in the Emerald Triangle in the 90s because that's how you get away with it. You couldn't grow outside much. Because they would just and chop so, uh, over and shit like that. By that time, they brought the military. When they did all, when they went after us in the Bay Area for all of our uh, dealing, they also put in camp and all the people coming after the big Northern California crops too. So they, they went after, it was the two phase. They went after all the uh, big crops and the sun grown and they went after all the big loads. And so we went up and I did an indoor crop of 100 lights for about six years. And then that ended up getting busted right at the end of the uh, going into 2000. And so uh, then I went and started the Emerald Cup three years later. Uh, <laughs> saw it all come and started the Emerald Cup right after another bust. I almost got two more busts. And then I started the Emerald Cup right in the middle of that, right in the middle of the Emerald Triangle, right here in the heart of it. Interesting pivot. You're like, yo, cannabis has almost gotten me busted a few times. Let me pivot to cannabis competition. <laughs> Well, that wasn't the words of it. Then, then we, uh, a couple of years later, 
uh, Pebbles Trippett, the matriarch of our of our tribe, came and asked if I'd sponsor the sheriff's debates. First time in the country we'd have sheriff candidates come and deal with all the pot farmers and all the growers and dealers to see how we'd work together. So we outnumbered them. We had more people in Mendo than they, than we had that. Then. And so we had four candidates. It went so well, we had the runoffs come in, and we actually got Tom Allman elected. It was the first cannabis sheriff in the country. That's when we had the 9.31 program and all the stuff that Mendocino did back in 2007. And we got him elected after he came through us. Um, and then I asked Tom through my partner, if I could open a dispensary uh, at my place called Mendocino Cannabis, uh, the Mendocino uh, Farmers Collective. And he sent back word. He said, well, there's good news and bad news. My, my friend Mark comes back and he goes, there's good news and bad news, Tim. Tom said you could have, he said he had to talk to the DEA and all of his people at camp. And he said, the good news is they're going to let you have the dispensary. He said, the bad news is that you never told him who you were when you started evangelizing for him. He didn't know that you were like a long time, like hunted federal outlaw. And he said, your friends at the DEA your friends at the DEA want you, want you to know they're still going to get you. Oh. <laughs> and so that's when I had to pivot and go really even more straight. And I went into <laughs> the Emerald Cup heavier and into legalization and politics and a lot more of it. Because by that time, uh, I'd been, you know, my first book was called Dancing with the Feds because the feds have been hunting me for about 30 years. <laughs> that's a great that's a great name for a book, by the way, <laughs> especially when you learn what it what it's in reference to. Um, just, just to jump back, you said something interesting earlier about, uh, in your belief as to why the aliens, uh, the ETs were, uh, you, you were so connected to them and you said something about it's based on past lives. Uh, is that, to, are, are we to understand based off that, that the ETs live way longer lives than us, or at least under like can see the span of our like, uh, uh multiple, uh, lives. Uh, multiple iterations well it's a little it's a little of all of it first of all the ets that we're dealing with primarily who created us are the anunnaki and they live for 20 or thirty thousand years or more who, who created uh, us humanity yeah That's who created like, us, yeah. The anunnaki. yeah well let, let's go through the first part i can do this i've gotten it down i thought it was going to take me two hours to do a class of this but i've done so many of them now i can probably do the first part of this in like just a couple minutes because it's just simple <laughs> A simple basic fact. If you go, I don't know. I don't know this history you're speaking to, and it's, uh, it sounds fucking uh, interesting as all hell. So please, yeah, thank you. Zachariah Sitchin, who wrote the Twelfth Planet, who was a brilliant Jewish scholar who wanted to study pre-Hebrew history, so he started studying the Sumerians. They are the most ancient people, and yeah. he learned Sumerian language. So he learned how to, to to decipher Sumerian language, and when he did that, he discovered that they were talking about the Anunnaki who created us. And he was, they were talking about Enlil and Enke, who you read in the Bible, and Anu, their father, and this other planet, Nibiru. And he went into this whole book called The Twelfth Planet, and he wrote it in the 70s. Now, he wasn't right on everything because he didn't have all the information. Since then, there's been about three dozen more brilliant Sumerian scholars who can read and write Sumerian who've come back and validated that. So it's been very clearly stated that there were 12 kings and queens for a quarter of a million year period before the comet hit 12,000 years ago. So the Anunnaki were living here for a quarter of a million years all along this planet, Antarctica, all along of our shores and being quite happy. And then a comet hit. If you look it up, it's called the Younger Hydrus Impact Theory, but it's not a theory, it's a fact. Graham Hancock has written a book called America Before. It's about this impact. So this comet hit here, they've dated it now within five years of 12,685 years ago. And so what happens is this comet hits, they didn't have enough time. They weren't quite aware of this comet, even though they're very smart. They didn't quite get it. And so they got a lot of their ships out. They got a lot of their people out, but it destroyed. I mean, it hit 
North America in, in Michigan, the Great Lakes, and it also hit Greenland. And so what happens is it blows up. Now, Graham Hancock in his book lays it out. There's a people called the Clovis people in North America, and they've never really found any skeletons of them. I've only found a couple, and they've never been able to figure out where they all went. So what happens is this thing hits the ice in Michigan, and that's why the small ponds are all over the East Coast, because skyscraper-sized icicles got knocked up and hit all over the East Coast. It also made about a 500,000-foot tidal wave that washed over America. And it also wiped over all the shores of the world. That's why they're finding all these civilizations offshore now. That, so that's this, where the, this, that's where we hear these. Uh, I'm going to keep using theories because I'm not as plugged in. But that's where you hear the theories of like the uh, subaquatic, the Atlantean, like what the Atlantis rumor may be. May, the Atlantis myth may be explaining an ancient civilizations that or alien civilizations that live under the sea. Well, no, they weren't. They just went there. What happened was the sea, the sea level came way up after the comet hit. Okay. Okay. So what happens is Enlel and Enki. Enlel is the chief scientist for the Anunnaki. Enke is the chief. I'm sorry. He's the chief military. Enke is the chief scientist. Their father, Anu, this is all written out in Sumerian text, gave them permission to create us to be a workforce because they needed more people because they were mining gold around this world for their world. And, and helping themselves at the same time. Wait, so gold was important to them too. That's a weird. That's a wild coincidence. That no, gold. that's why. That's why it's important to us. Gold is basically worthless. We don't understand gold. It was very important to them for the alchemy of what they do spiritually with it, and for protecting their um, ozone. They use it for a protective coating over their ozone and for alchemy. But in itself. But what happened was we, because we were part of them, became thinking gold was more valuable. It's different. Right, because but, it, so it, it does, it's not like we use it for anything but currency no. measurement now. Or, yeah, or but, fine, but, yeah. yeah, right. So what oh. happens is they, so they spent 1,300 years creating us. And in the mythology, if you go back in the half man and half beast in the Greek mythology and all that, you know, the horses and this and that, well, they created all kinds of beings before they got us figured out. So Enke spent all these years creating all kinds of weird shit. And putting all this together, and dad comes down and really looks at the whole thing and goes, this is crazy. We're only, we're like, <laughs> what are you guys doing down, down here? I've, I'm a yeah, one of three boys. I've got that a few so, times in my life. <laughs> Put all your shit is, away. What are you guys doing here? Yeah. They either knew this was going to happen or they created it. There's still some controversy about that. But what comes next is Noah's great flood and Noah's ark. So they were going to let us all wash away 1,300 years later, 11,500 years ago in Noah's Ark. But Anke, his half-son, was Noah. You see the ages of these people, Noah and Abram and all of them, they're all 800 and 700. Half Anunnaki keeps you much older. So that's why the kings and queens were interbreeding, because they were doing it to keep the age levels and the superior blood levels up, because that's the Anunnaki blood. And so that's where that came from. So N.K. tells Noah, Noah survives, so do a lot of the indigenous people. And that's when the rest of the Anunnaki embedded themselves into all the indigenous people around the world. That's where you got the Mayan civilizations, the Peruvians and the Hindus and all these civilizations, the Sumerians and the Egyptians. Those are all Anunnaki civilizations that came out of that after the flood. Okay. And then they decided to let us go on. Their dad and them decided. But what happened was, and Lel won because NK wanted to. It's a long, it's a big story. Dude, I'm, I'm going to do more research after. I'm sure my listeners will be too, because this is uh this is intriguing as fuck. There was a group called the Cedars, and they were coming and they were breeding us with the with the hominides here. 
And they were slowly upstepping us into being a natural evolution of God's creations to be like a humanoid type being. So there was like a million year process being done. And the Anunnaki, when they went and started interbreeding with us, realized there were like 22 types of ETs in our DNA. And that we were like a gold mine. So when Enki made us, he realized he'd hit the jackpot, that we we're actually a very, very special being. The rest of the universe looks at us as very magical beings. Because we're very complex. Yeah, very complex. Like, where well, like there's a lot to... going on. I, I keep trying to tie it to things that I know are true. Uh for like this is the way I this is my way in for stuff like this, where it seems like hard hard for me to grasp, but hearing things like uh that's intrinsically why we're drawn to gold or that like that stuff make uh, helps me uh, connect with it as you go. So that's yeah. why I keep asking all these like uh, cheesy follow-ups, but that's that. No, it makes sense. It's, it's wild how it ties, uh, you know, like into Christianity though, at growing up Christian, you don't hear much about that. This, you don't hear anything about all this stuff, but it's interesting that the two, there are truths to everybody's histories and everybody's myths. I, that's like the most exciting thing about, for me coming at it from that direction is how so many uh, religions, how many, so many peoples, how many, so many historic uh, civilizations, ancient civilizations had such parallels uh, in like these, these beliefs, you know, like the, the gods, the, uh, uh, you know, everything. there's a lot, way too many parallels for societies that weren't connected, like, at, like that weren't geographically connected. So that's like, that's the shit that is so intriguing to me. And it's so th this is obviously a very uh, a possible justification for all that. Yeah. Yeah. All of them have the, the great flood story. Almost most civilizations have the great flood story. Um, most of them talk about these things coming in. If you look at it, uh, it's very common. The native Americans, all of them say we came from the stars, uh, yeah. the Dogen tribe, most of these people. So it, no, it, it did come in this way and it did happen. So basically, NK got kicked out because he wanted to let us go and be a free people. And Enlil wanted us to just be like little swerker race. So Enlil, en Enlil is basically Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's not God speaking. When you see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament, yeah. that wasn't God. That was the Anunnaki God Enlil. And that's where that comes from. And so then uh, that's what all of this basic thing was. And so we're about to be we're about to be introduced into the Intergalactic Council. Within the next year, we will. And Enke is going to come and land here. Our creator is going to land here because he's still alive. And Whoa, he's going and to land here. Yeah. Where are you hearing about this Intergalactic Council thing? Because this seems like that, that phrase. I love. This is like this is the kind of shit that's exciting to me about these uh, these worlds and these topics is that. You're saying uh, we're ab about to be invited into the Intergalactic Council. I have never even, I don't even know what the Intergalactic, I mean, I think I could guess based on the name. It seems like it's kind of in the name a little bit. Tell me a little bit about this and and how or uh, w where we're hearing that we're going to be invited. I mean, I'm sure some people know, but uh, let, please let me know. I'm curious. Well, all the leading re uh, researchers in the UFO realm, uh, Elena Danan, Michael Sala, uh, David Wilcock, Michael Tillinger, uh, you know, go down the list, you know, they're, they're basically all coming to, to a come. And then a lot of the other researchers and other fields are all coming to a very common thread. And what's very interesting. I've been like a truth seeker since the seventies. Cause I've been really, I spent hours a day. truth seeking. I started researching uh, Kennedy and uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King's murders with Mae Russell and dialogue conspiracy. That's what we were going after back then. That's what it was. And it all peeled back into the UFO thing. 
Well, now you're seeing a lot of traditional researchers that are also even Joe Rogan, Russell Brand, all of them really bringing up this this ET thing. This is really coming out big because it's all basically the underlying theme. So in a nutshell, um, the Intergalactic Council is the council that governs this galaxy. And it's an intergalactic council of beings that come together to look out for the welfare and the stewardship of this part of the universe. And now Earth... Uh, earthlings or humans are going to be invited to finally participate in it or we have been think about it this way in most planets around the universe you wake up and you're born and you get told about your neighbors that live all over around you you know and it's not different colors of humans it's like oh you've got the the androgens over here and you've got the you know, Lemurians over here. And I mean, there's alien beings that live all around you in your universe. And we're all aware of it. And we visit with each other. And we have, you know, instead of going to our like uh, school programs in Europe, maybe you go to Mars and you go to a school program or something. Right. You know? I'm, doing a, I'm doing a semester abroad uh, off Kepler yeah. 138 or whatever. But, but with us, what happened was we were created by the Anunnaki without permission. We were kind of without getting permission, they created us and started a whole different thing that's gone on. And now the whole galaxy is watching it. And so we're one of the few, they call us a faith-based planet because we really don't know who we are. We're living on very, very uh, primitive things with the Old and New Testament and all the other religious beliefs of the world. We really don't know what true spirituality, its true source is. And so they look at us as very unusual beings. And so they all come from all over the universe just to study us because we're so fascinating. Um, and so they're very much looking forward to introducing us and being able to welcome us into the Intergalactic Council. And so they're doing that now. I can show you a picture of one of the ships that came back, uh, which was in the, um, uh, the James Webb Telescope that came back, which is one of them. They got about 4 million people on a ship orbiting Saturn right now. There's several Whoa. of them. But So basically they've come in from all over the universe because this is like the third act of a play. Let's think of it this way. you got three acts in a play, beginning, middle, and an end, or a movie. Yes. So we're we're at the end of the movie where now we've been going along for 12,000 years as this really unique, unusual experiment, very unusual. And we're coming to the conclusion where we're going to now be introduced to our families and we're going to be integrated into the Intergalactic Council. And we're going to be given free energy, which we should have been given 100 years ago. And we're going to be giving med beds and medical technology to keep us alive for hundreds of years, which they kept from us. And we're going to get rid of the whole monetary system because there's no reason for us to have that. They don't use money. Nobody, the, the idea of them, the idea to most of these civilizations for somebody to have the kind of wealth that somebody like a Bezos or a Musk does is in, un, unheard of to them. They wouldn't even consider it. Everybody do these, should do well. Do these societies, yeah. that's so, do these societies have their own entertainment or do they watch our entertainment? I'm curious. Like, do they pick up like a signal and watch the, watch the office or something like that? Or do they watch well, us watch curious. the office and enjoy seeing us? They laugh. definitely like, watch us. But we are, we are definitely a sitcom or whatever you want to call it for them. <laughs> I'm saying we, yeah. they are fascinated by our crazy shit that we do, what we do to each other, and everything else. They just can't believe it. But, are we like a uh, zoo planet? Like a zoo planet in a way? They're like, look, we're gonna let them get civilization, but for now, you got to go down to Santa Cruz, pick up this eight year old. That like they, these guy, this guy. He's lived multiple lives. You're you're gonna like this dude. You're gonna oh you gotta you gotta go over this farm, man. Take a little joyride over the five. Like is that I, I I'm pers maybe you know anthropomorphizing them the beings too much the ETs. But the, is there some element of like 
dude, did you hear about Earth? It's like, yeah, man, we got to go visit it next time we're nearby. Like, that's where, that's where, uh, one uh, of the giant, the Anunnaki's, that's where the Anunnaki's made all those little people. Yeah, we got to go fucking buzz by and check it out. Is that like what we're experiencing when we have these light ET encounters and stuff where, where we're not, you know, wh- wh- why they're so hidden to us still? Well, God, we don't have, there's a whole other story in that. Um, a couple of the Sumerian things. If people want to go back and study really quickly, go back and look at Sumerian art, and you're going to see the giant beings holding up a mountain lion, like in one of the pieces with regular beings standing next to him. And you can see these Anunnaki are 10 to 15 feet tall. They're like 600 pounds. They're big, okay? And that's why you hear about it in the Old Testament, in the time of the giants. That's why you see this stuff all over the place. I mean, it's Greek, very and Greek. Greek mythology has yeah, giants. Norse mythology, Norse mythology it. has giants. Yeah, it, it's all of it. They were all in. They made us a fraction of the of the size of themselves because they didn't want to be threatened by us. So you can go study that. You can just look up Sumerian text. You can look up Michael Tellinger because he talks about all the stuff that he found a spot where they come from in South America where they they found where the, the Anunnaki had a settlement where their walls are like. 30 feet thick and 40 feet high of rock. It's like the most unique. But going back, then you can go back. Look, anybody who wants to go look at Akhenaten and Nefertiti in um, Egyptian art, go back and look at the art of their children. They always cover their heads because the Anunnaki have a cone head. They have a cylinder, elongated heads, right? Uh Their head structure is different. And that's why you always see it covered, okay? and But the children don't have it. So if you look at Nefertiti and Akhenaten, you look at art in Egyptian culture, you'll see that the kids have the elongated skulls. Okay. They didn't, people, people are like, oh, they exaggerated that for artistic purposes. They didn't exaggerate that. They painted the kids with the way they looked and they have exaggerated, they have elongated skulls because that's the way their heads are. That's an Anunnaki or a half Anunnaki skull. Okay. They've been hiding them all over the world for the last 200 years. The Smithsonian has been doing a great job. So you can research this stuff quite easily. But now people like Graham Hancock are bringing it in. But Michael Sala is probably the leading researcher. He's got a six-book series on that's all documented and backed up by facts. He does uh, some incredible work Michael Sala's doing. Uh, again, um, boy, uh, Michael Tillinger's doing great work. Uh, you know, Graham Hancock's in there. It's coming from everywhere. There are people now bringing it from all over, and I study with so many of them. But it's all right there. But it's fascinating because it's not so cut and dry as far as a peaceful thing. I thought this was a peaceful unrolling out uh, evolution. But really, um, there's a huge thing that happened with uh, the Germans during World War II and ETs. And it's become a big thing, and people know a lot about it. Uh, I'll give you a, uh, let me see, you're at 7356. If people look up one of Michael Sala's books, which has got a book with uh, William Tompkins. William Tompkins was the head of the spy program for World War II. William Tompkins went as a 17-year-old to the naval display in San Diego and from one site memory recreated every ship and blew the military away so much he became the head of the military spy program in World War II. And he came back talking about all the naval, the ET ships that the Germans were building with help from, from ETs. And the Germans came very close to almost beating us, but they decided they didn't have quite the manpower and couldn't get it done quick enough. But what they did was they pulled back to Antarctica. They were told about ancient bases and sites in Antarctica. And so when you read about all the Germans getting arrested down in South America, this is another one of those tie-ins. 
I'm older yeah. than you. We all like, why are these Germans all down there in South America? The that's boys they from were Brazil. Jumping. Yeah. Yeah. They were all going to Antarctica from there because that's where their bases were. So what happens is they go down there. Then you have the largest naval expedition in the history of the world, bigger than anyone in World War II. It was Admiral Byrd. This is a very famous naval expedition he did to Antarctica right after World War II. He went down to root the Nazis out, but their UFO ships blew him up and blew the Whoa. shit out of him. And it's all been whitewashed through the YouTube and Google and everything. But there are papers that people can show you some of Michael Sala's work where he gets off shore in South America and says he was dealing with ships that could go from pole to pole in minutes. And so then he comes home. Then there's another famous picture of the spaceships over the White House. It also got whitewashed from all the Google. Those weren't UFOs. Those were Nazi military craft. Wow. And they checkmated Dwight Eisenhower. So this is what happens in the rollout. They go over Dwight and they go, look, Dwight, checkmate. We can wipe you out, but we don't have the production capabilities to make the crafts. We want you to use your production capabilities to make the crafts. We'll give you the technology. We'll do a trade. We'll go into space. You go into space. All good. Dwight didn't have a choice, so he agreed. That's where MJ-12 and all this shit came from. But within two years, Dwight Eisenhower wasn't allowed into Area 51. He was already not allowed in. He threatened to go in with the military because what happened was the Boeing and Douglas and all those people in the military and CIA and the Bushes, they all joined the Nazis and said, fuck it. We're going to take the ET thing for ourselves and we're cutting out the world. And that's when Dwight did. If you go back and look at Dwight's famous speech, remember, beware industrial complex. Dwight Eisenhower has a very famous speech that he made before he left office. And in that speech, he says, beware of the military industrial complex. He's the one that named it because he was already cut out. So he tells John F. Kennedy, who's the head of the CIA back then? Bush. He tells John F. Kennedy, Kennedy tries to stop it. They killed Kennedy. The end of the free world. Took over Damn. the world. That ties right back in. So, so William Tompkins, this guy that watches all this, he goes on and becomes the head of NASA with uh, working under the top people at NASA, William Tompkins. He was under the top people at NASA throughout the whole program. He wrote this book with Michael Sala and said that the military industrial complex launched in the early 60s or late 50s. And they were in space dealing with 700 ETs in trade by the time the good part of the military, the Navy and the Army launched with some good ET help in the mid 80s that we launched eight mile and a half long spacecraft to combat them. And there's been basically star Wars in space since the late eighties. Oh man. Uh, that's fucking wild. And this, was, and this was from, and this is from William Tompkins, the head of the spy program in world war two. And one of the leading people at NASA. And if you read his book, one of the leading people at the major aircraft companies in the world, his whole life in NASA. Dude. And uh, that's, so that's the piece of what came in. So that's, so we got the Anunnaki piece that created us. Then these people came in with the Nazis and this whole other insane fucking thing. And when I went and met these people seven years ago at the Great Eclipse, when I wanted to go to this big party and my girlfriend had me go to this UFO conference, that's when I met them all. And I thought I knew a lot. And then I realized I didn't. They told me some things about this that I had no idea. And every bit of it's come true. Jesus. Well, Tim, you've. I've learned a lot. I've you gave me like a ton of vocab words that I got to go do some research on. 
few that I've heard before, a few that I haven't heard before. I always love to get into the nitty gritty with this stuff. This stuff intrigues me. Everyone's got, you know, different little corners of a, a similar uh, tapestry that they're all focused on. So hearing from all different people is so rad. But before we get you out of here, this episode is coming out the uh, weekend before the uh, the Thursday before the weekend of Emerald Cup. Uh can people get can non judges and non you know people can get tickets and just uh, uh, show up? No, they can't. This is a private party for three thousand people. It's oh, going to be three thousand contestants, judges, sponsors, guests, and uh, crew. And uh, it is uh, we're giving a ticket to everybody that bought a VIP ticket to the Harvest Ball this year. They got invited, so they got the bonus of their lives. But this is the coolest inside party. Uh, that we're doing at the Craneway Pavilion. We're going to start at 420. We're going to uh, do the awards. We're going to watch the sunset over the bay, and then we're going to party till sunrise the next morning. Oh, hell yeah. Now, uh, the way people can benefit big time from the Emerald Cup is when you guys publish the winners, and they can find some new strains and some new places and some new growers and some new uh, products to test out and try out for themselves. So where can people find the results yeah. when the Emerald Cup pops up? Oh, they'll, they'll all be on uh, at theemeraldcup.com. And uh, we're building an almanac of all of our data so people can find out uh, lots of stuff about what's going on in the leading capital for cannabis in the world. Like this year, we had more indoor for the first time than outdoor entries, sun-grown entries. Incredible. For the first time, we had almost twice as many indoor entries as sun-grown, which is just phenomenal. We're going to probably look at distillate and CO2 cartridges go by the wayside because there's so much good cannabis that people are making live resin and live rosin carts that are so extraordinary that people are just not even going to smoke this or seal cartridges, CO2 cartridges much longer. That's going right. The solvent extracts really dropped off because of the same thing. There's so the much quality. Yeah. Solventless is so cheap and so big. Well, you know, get it so cheap. Everybody's just going there. So we're watching our whole industry morph. Uh, people around the country and around the world can learn from us. And then they don't have to make those mistakes and waste a lot of time on cheap stuff like distillate and CO2 and crap Yeah, and uh, get it right. So, uh, stick with us at theemeraldcup.com and learn from us. Go with us. We have scoring systems on our whole terpene classification system. I, I love cannabis. I love ETs, and I love getting on podcasts with people like you and educating and learning. And and yeah, this was rad as fuck, Tim. I, also, uh, everyone, you know, prayers up. Keep the keep the edible uh, taste testers in your hearts. Like, yeah, keep them in your thoughts as they are consuming hundreds upon hundreds of milligrams a day in preparation so that you can know which gummy hits the best or which baked good indica really works the way you want it to work or tastes the way you want it to taste. Uh, Tim, this has been a real pleasure, man. Uh, I, I'm look, I look forward to hearing more about this and, you know, uh, bringing some of the stuff I heard from you back to my uh, my ET cronies and uh, throwing some names and some buzzwords around, seeing uh, what what kind of conversation I get going with them. So this was rad as fuck, man. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, good luck with the EC uh, with the Emerald Cup. <laughs> good luck with the ETs, the EC, uh, and the THC. Absolutely. <laughs> And we're going into our 20th year, so people should stay tuned because we're going to our biggest year, 20th anniversary. Uh, next year, 2024, we're going to have a couple of big shows uh, that will be for people to attend. And hopefully we'll bring the uh, award ceremony and a public show back together again so everybody can be there. Because we used to do it with everybody. We didn't make it a private show. This year, we just couldn't find the place to really do a public show like that. So it was easier for it to do private. But we want to bring the whole show back together so the public can be there right with all the contestants and all of us watching it all go down. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, thank you, Tim, for taking your time. 
As always, I'm at Gabrielson on social medias. Check out my other podcast, Action Boys. And please watch the show, 101 Places to Party Before You Die, now on HBO Max. Bye, shitheads! That was a headgum podcast. In a part of the world where there are no rules. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit, guys. Holy I'm so pumped. I definitely have not watched this since I rented it on VHS in 92. Strangers united by the threat of death. We got all the fucking major players. Seagal. Vladimir Putin is a good man. Arnold. Here, come. Give it to me. I need you to cream pie me now. Stallone. People are loving this movie. It's actually, it's got a lot of heart. You're mentally irregular. <laughs> now... Somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna pay. I would fucking love for my wife to, like, see me rip a guy's throat out. But they didn't count on one thing. This movie's fucking insane. It's how you know it's a good movie. You have to do almost all the work yourself to figure it out. Oh, there's a fantasy component. There's some sword fighting. There's some lightning. Bam, 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 bam. You wake up after a few years and then you don't even know who you are anymore. We're going to be making Terminators. <laughs> We're going to make a really great deal with the Xenomorphs. <laughs> I don't hate them, but I pity the roommate. Yes, I understand. This is now the 20th ending of the movie. I am dark. I'm your dad. <laughs> Action boys. Boys will be boys. Subscribe here for bonus content and more free stuff from behind the paywall. To get new episodes, become a patron at actionboys.biz. Do it. Do it. Come on. Do it now.